everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Haskin Cast podcast. I am your host, Scott Haskin, here with part two of my interview with Robin Cote. I uh, I had so much fun talking to her as I as I do all the time, and uh, we we really got into some deep stuff this time. So I'll be curious to know what you guys think. Uh, a lot of uh, spiritual and philosophical conversation, which I always enjoy. And uh, yeah, so what did you guys think? Let me know uh, the first episode and let me know what you think of this one and uh, let me know your feelings. It's a tough subject because it's one of those things that you either believe in or you don't or you want to believe in, but you need proof or you don't want to believe in it. You don't want to know that this might exist. Uh, But for some people like Robin, this is a reality and this is something that she deals with all the time. And, uh, you know, what can you do when you're faced with something you don't understand or when you're faced with something that um, you don't uh, want to know about, but it's there, you have no choice. You just got to deal with it one way or another. And uh, I think that she's chosen a very wise path. And I I had uh, such a a great time digging into this with her. And, you know, a lot of the conversation is philosophical because we don't have answers. We, We can speculate. We can say maybe it's this or this makes sense. But that's just based on what we know. And we're also talking about things that we don't know. So uh, the the reasons behind or the outcomes or, or our perceptions could be completely different than the world that this exists in. So it's uh, it's something that you just have to feel what you feel about it. And uh, if you're interested in it, explore more. If you're not, then uh, or you're not ready to, then don't. But uh, definitely Robin's book is is very fascinating. Soul Stirrings is a, a wonderful read. It's it at times is tough because it deals with a lot of emotional stuff. And of course, I have the perspective of Robin being a very, very close and dear friend. So uh, much like her first book, Victim No More, it's it's there are parts that are difficult to read, part because you just don't want to see anybody going through tough things, but also part because it's somebody that you just, you know, you wish you could protect. And she's such a wonderful person, even if you don't know her, just listening to her, I kind of think that you'd want to, you know, kind of be there and protect her because she's awesome. So uh, really dig into this. And if you haven't listened to part one of the interview, I would start with that, go back a couple of episodes, listen to part one, and then come back and listen to this one. It'll make more sense if you kind of follow the conversation and uh, see why we get into where we're at, where I had to break it off. I try to find a good spot around halfway uh, but our podcast went like two and a half hours. And so I uh, couldn't find an exact spot in the middle. But I found, I think, a pretty good spot to to cut it off. And that's one of the challenges because on the show, the conversations flow so well that they one subject really kind of just flows into another. And it's not like I just change gears very often. And um, so it, it's, you know, trying to find a spot that isn't awkward to cut it and end a show and then continue it on in the next show can be a little bit weird. But I think I found a pretty decent spot for uh, for this set of podcasts with Robin. Had the same problem last time she was on the show. It's like we talked for like two and a half hours and um, finding that, you know, that sweet spot to say, OK, I'm ending the first episode here and going to start the second episode there and and that. But, uh, you know, that's part of the challenge of being a podcaster. Uh, so I, just so you know, I'm recording this uh, intro a week in advance because I am getting ready to move and I don't want to have any delays in the podcast based on the internet not working where I get set up or there being any problems. So uh, just to be on the safe side, I'm getting this recorded and uploaded ahead of time. Uh, when I return, I will be in the new place. So this is the last show I'm doing in my current place where I've been the whole five years that I've been in Vegas. I cannot believe I've been here that long. 
uh, it seems not that long ago that I left California. And it's kind of ironic that uh, when I had to go outside earlier uh, today, that the uh, the weather was very California, like it's very cloudy, a little bit of chill in the air, uh, looked and felt very California today. And uh, so it's kind of neat, you know, uh, brings back a lot of good memories I have of my time there. Uh, and uh, but I'm happy to be here. This is where I belong. And I will continue to live here until uh, probably I'm not living anymore, which will hopefully be a long time down the road. I'm doing everything I can to stay safe and healthy, especially during this uh, crazy pandemic time and uh, just moving forward. So I hope that you guys are all taking care of yourselves and staying safe and being wise and taking care of each other because it's very, very important to do that. So without further ado, here is part two of my interview with the amazing Robin Cote. you get into this in the book. So the the first section of the book really deals with your husband and and the family and coming to terms with all of this. And then uh, the last part of the book is when you take your trip to New York and you're at the uh, September 11th Memorial and you start getting interacted with. Oh, yeah. And um, for most of us, we all knew what happened that day. You know, I worked in the newsroom. I saw it firsthand like a lot of people did. I, I witnessed the murder of many people. And I had all kinds of premonitions beforehand, but didn't understand it. I had things happen after that being directly affected by what I saw. And then I always wanted to go there. For some reason, I needed to go to New York, to the towers. And in January of 2018, I went there and stayed with my buddy, Andy, and him and I went down there. I said to him, I said, you know that my main purpose for this trip is to go there. I have this need to figure out why all these things happened to me. I need to put this to rest. But what happened to me, oh, man, I never imagined what happened, what was going to happen. And from the minute I was across the street, I couldn't breathe, Scott. I I could not breathe. I felt like burning sensation going in my throat into my chest. And I just felt like someone was asphyxiating me. And, you know, we walked over to the South Tower. And for some reason, we turned around and I was we were both pulled over to the North Tower to the one corner. And immediately when we walk up there, I'm hearing two names come to me. And I'm like, what the hell is this? I'm not expecting this. And. Andy's looking at me like, what's wrong with you? And I'm telling him this whole thing. I'm hearing these two names. Then I see this lady, like she's standing right in front of me that I could touch her. I see her as plain as day with this distraught look on her face. And she's telling me, I left my family here. I left my family here. And I could just, I could feel the pain that she was feeling. And, you know, within a matter, I I would say probably 15 minutes, I had six spirits come to me at that, you know, five at that corner. And one right after another, I could see here, there was a man that was on fire. He put his arms out in front of him and his hands and his arms were fully engulfed in flames. And I put my hands out in front of me and I could see my hands on fire. I couldn't feel it. I couldn't smell it, mm-hmm. but I could see it. And I could see the look on his face. I could sense the fear he was feeling. 
Yeah. Well, let me let me ask you because you know we think that when you know when we die, our problems are going to be over. That's the the concept behind committing suicide. Um, what is it that you think? And, and maybe you can't answer this, but I'm curious to get your thoughts. Take this lady, for example. She's upset that she left her family here. We're talking it's been more than 10 years since this happened, but she's still here, still grieving. Why? My feeling is that I don't think they are trapped here. That's just the essence of their spirit because that's their final resting place. I don't believe that you get trapped there. You know, it's like a radio frequency. We all have this ability to pick up on things. And some of us are able to be that receptacle a lot clearer than most people because of the things that we've gone through in our mind being open to certain things. And that's what I think is just there's so much that happened there. So many people died there. I don't I don't believe it's a ghost that's hanging around that's haunting the place that is haunted by things. I I don't believe that they're that they're trapped there. That's one of the things that when I'm writing about this, I'm very careful because it's real life people. It's a real event that took its toll and still continues to take its toll on people around the world. But I don't believe that they are trapped there. I think it's just the essence of the experience. Because we tend to forget these incidents that happen. We all came together after 9-11. When 9-12 was here, we all band together as Americans. We were all human. We were humane to one another. We lost sight of that. Unless it personally affects you, a lot of times you move beyond the incident and you tend to forget. That's why they're always reminding you every year, never forget, never forget. A lot of them do get forgotten. You know, people mm. forget it because it's not directly related. Well, and they've distanced I, themselves from the emotion of it, too. I mean, when it first yeah. happened, it was shocking. The shock of it is gone. Um, the uh, the I, I remember what it was like as the day unfolded and not knowing how much what else was going to happen. It was now we can look at it and go, OK, there were four planes and we know that that's where it ended. But we didn't at the time. No. As far as we knew, no. that was only the beginning. We had no idea what to expect. And we didn't know that the whole thing was over in a couple of hours. Um, so all that, that emotion, the shock, the intensity, all of that wears off over time. But what we forgot was to continue to be humane to each other. Yes. And, you know, I think people who are open and receptive like me, I know for a fact I'm not the only one that's felt these things. I've seen, I have done hour i mean i kid you not 400 hours plus of research when i came back from new york to figure out who these people were because i heard i heard three names mm -hmm. janet jeanette and william i heard three names and i had faces to at least two of these people or three of these people the man on fire i have no clue who that is i've never been able to figure that out mm -hmm. but i know the identity of the four spirits that perished on 911 because I did my research when I came back. And I I seriously don't believe they are trapped there. I think it's just because that's their final resting place. Even though some of the remains were, were buried, mm -hmm. families got them back. But still, I still think because, I mean, think about this. If you're on one side of the building, the, the one lady I connected with, I found out through her research, you know, the research that she was on the one side of the building 
she was like on one of the 90th floors up there where the plane hit, but it was on the opposite side. Okay. She was able to, she was able to call her husband and talk to him before she died. Mm-hmm. But to be in that place where you know you're going to die. Yeah. Think about all those people that jumped out because they knew they were going to die and they wanted to take it. They didn't want to burn to death. They figured jumping out is going to be easier. It's going to be on my terms. Mm-hmm. And I guarantee you the second they step out there to do it, there's probably that regret that they did it. But then again, we don't know what's going through their mind. I mean, that's it's a crazy state of mind to be in when you know you're going to die when you're faced with your own mortality. So I believe that with all of that emotion around that event that day, seeing what was going on and knowing what was happening, those the essence of their spirit is still there just because of the magnitude of all of that controlled energy and all of those people that are there, you know, talking to their loved ones the ones that couldn't talk to their loved ones. And the one guy, I don't think ever got a chance to talk to his loved ones because I saw him in rubble in a a field position, rocking back and forth, just crying and saying, I'm so sorry, mom. Mm -hmm. He, you know, there's that essence of their spirit is so damn strong that it's going to be part of that. It's a it's a sacred site and it has to be respected as one. So I think that leads more uh, to the idea that we can split the energy a little bit. That certain, I think so. Yeah, certain residual portions might be uh, left over where a tragedy is, which would kind of understand why uh, places might be haunted, like the Tower of London, which was a, a torture chamber, or places like the, the 9-11 memorial, because so many people died there. But when you talk about final resting place, uh, it's interesting to to have that as a term because what we're really talking about is the final resting place of our physical body that that we yeah. all agree is just a vessel. Why is that important? Uh, that's a good question. I, I think the final resting place is important for the families. I don't think it's important for us when yeah, we when we go to the other it, it's for the survivors because they have to have something tangible. And so many families never got that tangible thing. So it's hard for them to try to move on with their life without having something tangible. And, you know, some of these documentaries I watched, it's so difficult because family members were getting pieces and parts of particles. And then they get a call two or three years later, we found some more of your loved one. Then another couple of years later, we found some more. Mm-hmm. They're having to constantly relive that. And yeah. to me, that that's the hard part. And of course, their loved ones who have passed on, there's nothing that they can do because the person is so caught up in the grief of having to relive that moment over and over that a lot of times when we're so caught up in the emotion, we miss out on the signs that they are still here with us trying to help us. Well, that and the fact that how do you ever uh, come to terms and finally let go of all that when you know that at any moment, whether it's tomorrow or three years from now, you might get another phone call that says, hey, we're going to re- reopen that wound again because we found some part of a body that's not relevant to anything anymore. No. And, you know, if you want to go into something really personal, I don't mind talking about it with okay. having to do with a fireman. It kind of goes right along the lines of that. Mm-hmm. Um I connected with one of the firemen and there's a a firehouse directly across the street. And they're the ones that always responded to the tower. They were the first on scene 
and it's 10 house. It's right in the kitty corner where the towers are. I connected with one of the firemen, the rookie fireman that lost his life in the collapse of the tower. And he didn't tell me his name when I, I mean, like I told you, I, I had five spirits come to me at that corner. They bombarded me one right after the other. So I couldn't tell the difference between a couple of them, but I knew this guy was a fireman and I got hit with a beam on the back of my head and I saw it and I felt this huge thing hit me. I felt it. So the essence of that actual event, I mean, it wasn't like, you know, I felt this thump on my, on the back of my head, like I got hit and I could see it. Now, just, just to clarify, you're talking about like a structural beam, not like a beam of light, a structural beam. And this was part of the collapse of the tower. And he's showing you what happened to him. Yes. And I felt it, but I, it took a lot of research to find out who he was. Mm -hmm. And it was only through watching documentaries. And one of the firefighters from that house talked about him. And when I saw the picture, it blew my mind. I was like, holy cow, that just hit me real hard. I knew it was him. Mm -hmm. And in the funny thing is when I, when I did my research, I did not know this, but when he was hit, he was decapitated. Oh, wow. And he was all, his body was also crushed. So when they found him, they found him and another firefighter with a woman in the middle of them, they were carrying her down. Oh. And I found, I found this out later, but he was on the third floor landing coming down when the building hit. And when they found his body originally, he was decapitated. They did not find that portion of his body. Mm-hmm. The family buried the the from the neck down. They buried him. And then they got the call down the road that they had found his head with the helmet. So they had to bring up the coffin, put oh. that in there, and then rebury him a second time. This is how excruciatingly painful it is for these families that went through this. But well, and for the person that makes the call, I mean, how do you how do you call somebody and say, "Hey, we found your son's head"? Yeah, how do you do that? And this is this is a decorated hero working with the fire department. He was just about ready to get past the rookie status and become a full fledged firefighter. Mm-hmm. Now. I'm going to tell you something. I don't write about this part in the book. I never reveal the messages that I give to people because it's not for public consumption. It's private. Sure. But but basically the message he gave me without talking to me at that point was to let his family know that he did not suffer because the minute he got hit with that beam, he was gone. He didn't feel the building crush him. Oh, sure. It was, yeah. it, it was instantaneous. So that was the message I got. But then I had planned to go to New York last year, September, 2019. Before we we get to that. And and I I definitely want to talk to you about that because (laughs) this, this is where we start extending beyond what the book tells. Now the book talks about your first visit to uh, New York. uh, But I, I, I'm going to sound like a really cold hearted person and you know me, Robin, you know, I'm not, I don't understand there's a part of me that gets it, but there's a part of me that says, you know what, whether he suffered or not, it's in the past. It, whether, yeah. you know, if I found out that, uh, that somebody I knew or, or was related to or whatever, yes, it would be terrible if they were laying there for two hours in pain before they died, but it's over. It already happened. So whether they did or not, it's, it doesn't change anything for them now. 
So I go back and forth between that. I understand the emotional side of it, but but there's another part of me that goes, we don't need to bury his head. We don't need to bury his body. He's not in there. We don't need to go to cemeteries because the person is not there. That's the representation of them. Am I being am I being ridiculously cold? No, no, you're not being cold. And I'll tell you why, because you're looking at it analytically in a sense, not emotionally. And you have to remember these loved ones were snatched. They were snatched out of our world. His family lost this beautiful young man who was 26. You know, we're talking about the firefighter, for example. Mm -hmm. This was a guy who finally got his life together after being in the military and then going to fire service in New York, who was now going to start looking for a woman to get married and have children and settle down. This was a young man in the prime of his life who was snatched away from his family. So you have to remember, once they move on to the other side, we're left with what's left behind. But I think it's, it's, it's really more about us getting the uh, the grief and the emotion out yeah. than there yeah, is any reason for any of those actions to happen. Because I've always yeah. believed that the, the dead don't care about their funerals. They don't care about, no, they don't. you know, it's, it's over for them. They get that. But it just seems like it's really the heart of it all is really it's more about us grieving. And yes. finding a way to deal with it. But it's just it's just like being so attached to the physical body intellectually, I guess, just feels like a weird thing. I get it. I completely get it. You know, I I understand that more than anybody having gone through all the death that I have. And to be able to go up to a dead body. The first time I went up to a dead body and kissed in the coffin was my dear friend who committed suicide years ago. Mm -hmm. And he was 29. That was hard for me. I didn't understand a lot of things back then. But when I went to the mortuary to um, acknowledge that that was my husband's body before we did the cremation, I was okay with it. I understood he was no longer there because the smile was off of his face. We donated his cornea. So his eyes were black and blue around his eyes. So I understood that there it was just the vehicle, but it takes a while for someone to get there, especially when they're grieving and the loss of that physical person being in their life every single day. Yeah. They, and it's different for me because I've had the experiences of having signs be shown to me that they are still with me in some sense and they're not really gone 100%. And then I will see him again because I know I will once I leave this lifetime and go over there. And that's when we're in the middle of the grieving process, we can't get past it. And that's kind of what I explained at the very end of the book, that they don't want us to give up on our lives. They don't want us to sit and grieve their loss all the time. They do want to be remembered because that that helps you as well, because it's only when the dead are forgotten that they really do die. And Mm -hmm. we honor them. We celebrate their anniversaries, their death anniversaries, their birth anniversaries, our wedding days to them. You know, anything that is something personal, we celebrate that, but we we do get caught up a lot in the grief. And that's why there is the whole burial process. That's why people go visit the graves all the time. Mm-hmm. I, I used to do that to two of my friends. One was a musician who died in a car crash, and again, the other one was a suicide. They both were buried in, in a veteran cemetery because they both served in the military. I would go see their graves. Every time I drive by, I say hi. I'd say hi, Ted. Hi, Dennis as I drove by. Mm -hmm. And then once in a while I would go to their graves and then I'm like, 
you know, when I finally got it about the whole difference between the body and the soul moving on and the body just being here, I'm like, why the hell am I even sitting here talking to you guys? I could talk to you anytime I want. Well, I don't have true. to come. I don't have to come sit at your grave and spend that time. I can just drive right by and say, hi, guys, there's your body, you know, and I make jokes about it. I'm morbid because I get it. But when you're in the middle of grieving, you know, it has to be hard for a parent. And this man and his sister were very close. It has to be hard for them to not have the finality of 100% of the body being there. But even though you have to kind of understand, too, that when, when he came to me and showed me what happened, there was a reason why. Because eventually he knew I was going to have to deliver this message to somebody and that it was going to mean something. So that's why I honestly believe he showed me how he died and how it was instantaneous because, you know, like I said, there were people that made phone calls. They talked to their loved ones before the building fell. So they knew that they had a chance to get out. They didn't have a chance to get out. They knew they were never going to see their loved ones again. And even though they make peace with it, it still sucks to know you're going to die because your loved ones are left behind with that. I got to talk to them. That's great. But damn, I got to talk to them right before they died. Why couldn't I do something? Well, that's that's it. And then there's all the regret of what could I have done with that time? What could I have done yeah. better? And, you know, there, there's if I think that there's an opportunity every day for people to avoid that by just thinking about if you were to die tomorrow, what would you want to look back on and start living that way now? Yeah, you know, exactly. I, I get the grief thing on the intellectual side and I get the uh, the harshness of it, especially that day. But just thinking of death overall, um, I guess from the very first funeral that I went to was my neighbor that uh, lived across the street, this uh, older, older man, very nice guy. Um, we didn't know him very well, but when he passed away, we went to his funeral. And I, I remember thinking I, I was I don't remember how old I was, but I was fairly young. And I remember thinking, but he's not here. That's just his yeah. body. Why are we here? He's not here seeing us celebrate him or mourning him or whatever. And I guess I've always been a little bit disconnected, even when it's been my own family members uh, when I've gone to funerals, because I know that they're not in there. Yeah, and you had an understanding of it that most of us don't have, that it takes a while for us to get to that point. Very true. But I, I think I'm like that in general. Uh so I want to I want to talk to you about what happened when you went back to New York. So I think for one, it, it must have taken I have to give you a lot of credit for for a lot of things, Robin. We've known each other for years and I've seen a lot of the things that you've been through. But first of all, for writing Victim No More, I know the effort that that took for writing this book, Soul Stirrings. I, I can't even imagine having to relive all of that, the muscle memory and, and all that. Um, but when you went to New York, you kind of went out of your way, not expecting to experience things, but certainly with that possibility, because you had accepted by this point that you are somebody who can be contacted fairly easily from the other side. But you went back. <laughs> you went back again after those experiences. What was it that made you say, I experienced some really intense things while I was there. I've researched these people. I've learned about them. I want to go back again. I had no intention of going back to the towers and I didn't. But when I went back there this past year 
my buddy Andy was prompting me to take a trip and just come out. He's always been like that for the 30 years. And he goes, oh, you got to come out here and hang out with me. So it was really weird because it ended up being the weekend before September 11th. And I only worked three days in the studio. So I had four days off to go to New York. And when I thought about it, I'm like, you know, I, I really want to do something. I just, I want to go talk to the firefighters. I want to, something was really prompting me to go. And not too many people know about this, but a couple of days before I was due to leave to go back to New York, um, the firemen who didn't talk to me that day at the tower decided to start talking to me as I was driving to work. And this was my, um, I think I had one more day of work before I was going to take off and go to New York. All of a sudden I heard the voice and it started talking to me in the car and I had to turn down my stereo because I'm listening to my music and I'm like, what the hell? I turn it down and all of a sudden the voice starts talking to me. Mm-hmm. So he gives me a direction and I don't normally share the message, but I have to, because this is very important. Um, originally I was going to go there and just let the fireman know that he did not suffer because that was what the original message was intended to be. But as I made my way into work, Sean started talking to me and he said, look, he goes, you know, you have to let him, you have to let the guy know I was never able to be a father, but we've got him under our wing. We've, we've got, we've got, I can't remember exact words because the message is now gone, mm-hmm. but he said something to the point, let the old man know that I've got the kid with me, that I wasn't able to be a dad in, in the real life. So here in the afterlife, I'm able to be a dad, Let let him know that all of us boys got the kid. I didn't know what the hell this meant. Right. Mm-hmm. I had no idea. Right. But I knew it was important that I get on the ball and go to New York. So, of course, I did a couple of things in New York. But then there came the day that I had to go to the fire station. And I'm looking at Andy and I said, you know, I have to do this. Um, Sean is telling me I have to. And a lot of times these spirits are very persistent. They don't stop until you do something. Right. And, and they can be a real pain in the ass. Sean, Sean was OK, but, you know, he, he needed to get something out. So um, we got in a cab. It was raining. And in the cab, Sean started pestering me again, you know, and I'm like freaking out a little bit. And I'm looking at Andy going, am I really going to do this shit? Am I going to walk into a firehouse with guys who who dealt with this total strangers to me and bring this up? Well, well, let's and, stop here, because th- let's let's really get an understanding of this, because you're also talking about guys who live there still they're there every day they have a constant reminder of what happened how do you walk in there and go look i know this is gonna sound crazy okay but this guy's been talking to me and he wants me to tell like how do you mentally prepare to walk in and not know what their reaction is going to be because they could have been upset they could have screamed at you they could have you know any number of things could have happened yeah. And we got out of the cab. We were standing across the street and again, it's raining. And I'm, and I'm looking at Andy going, dude, I, I don't know about this. He goes, look, you know, you have no choice. You got it. So we walked across the street and 10 house usually has the doors open because they greet the public. Cause they are the, the ones that were the first responders that mm-hmm. day. And, um, you know, the one firefighter who I had initially gone there to meet was retired and he's the one that was on in all the documentaries that um, he met, he 
introduced me to Sean, basically. I figured out who Sean was through him. Okay. And when Andy and I walked up to the firehouse, there was a bunch of young firemen standing up front. I'm like, oh, these guys aren't old enough to have been here on 9-11 working. So I asked the young guy, I said, you know, is this particular firefighter there? And he goes, no, no, he doesn't work here. He's probably retired. And I said, well, is anybody working here that still that was working on 9-11? He goes, oh, yeah, hang on a second. So he goes back in the office and he pulls this guy out, this guy named Sal. Yeah, I'm, I'm and, sorry, Robin. Let's just just to put this in perspective, we're recording this in um, what is it, a- April of 2020. You were yeah. there in September or or late August of 2019. Yeah, so we're talking September 2019. Okay, September. so we're talking 18 years now after September 11th. Yes. So we're really talking um, about a great distance of time here. But you know that it, in in the people that live there, they're still living this. There's there's still a part of them that that knows it every day. Yeah. And when Sal came out, um, you know, I, I looked at him and I said, um, I've come a very long way to give you a message. And, um, I asked him, I, I said, well, first I said, do you know who Sean? And I gave the last name. I said, do you know who he is? He goes, yes. And, um, I said, okay. Um, I said, I've come a long way to give you a message. Is there some place we can go to talk? Because I didn't want to do this where the public could hear it or where these young firemen could. I mean, come on. These are young kids standing there in fireman outfits. And I'm going to, I'm going to tell this story about a dead guy. And, and these guys are going to snicker at me. You right. know, again, you're, you're like thinking in the back of my mind, I'm, a, I'm in Arizona and I'm in New York. These people don't take no shit. And they don't think no shit about 9-11. And I'm going to come in here to their house and say this? Mm-hmm. No. So he took his, He took me in the back, and Andy looked at me, and Andy's like, do you want me to Do you want me to stay out here? I'm like, no. You've got to come with me. You're a New Yorker. You were there. You're going to validate. It was mm-hmm. like, you know, there's two New Yorkers standing here, and there's one Arizona. No, no, no. I need the New Yorker in there covering my ass. Yeah. <laughs> you, need, you need to validate that I'm not a crazy fool for telling this guy this stuff. Right. And then we went into the back room and I started talking to him about things that had happened. And you could feel, I mean, I felt the pressure. I felt so much pressure and I was starting to cry. I was getting emotional. And I told him what I had happened, what had happened to me regarding his friend. And the, I, this is what made it so beautiful, Scott. This was what was meant to be. This is why I had to do this because the minute I told him that he did not suffer, that he didn't feel the pain, that immediately when he was hit, he was gone. He didn't feel the crush. He didn't feel anything. It came out of nowhere and it was just done. It was instantaneous. When I told him that, you could see the look of relief on his face, the tears in his eyes, and his shoulders slouched down. All that pressure, all of that trapped garbage that we hold on to about that i wonder if he suffered i wonder Mm -hmm. if he really you know all that stuff just left his body and then i asked him about the other firefighter and he said he was he was a good friend of his the one that i initially came there to meet and uh i told him i said well i got another message just before I left to come here and I don't know what this means. And maybe you can tell me. And I explained it to him about him having the boy, you know, taking care of the, having him under his wing. They're, they're taking care of him. The boys in the the fire squad are watching over. And he looks at me, he goes, did you know 
did you know? I'm like, did I know what? Here's the mind-blowing thing. The firefighter who was on the documentary talking about the firefighter I connected with Mm -hmm. lost his son prior to me coming to New York to share this message. So that's the boy he was talking about. Yes. Wow. That really hit home with me because I thought I was crazy for going there to do this. But to know that I could give somebody that sense of peace. And this is the first I've spoken about this publicly, the extended message I was given. But it's so important Mm -hmm. for people to understand that, yes, we do hold on to things we worry about what happened to our loved ones at the moment that they die. The sense of relief that I can give somebody knowing that this person did not suffer and then to give another beautiful message. And I'm going to take this a little bit further too. And I'm hoping that Sal doesn't get upset that I say this, but um, you know, after we talked about all this, I, we walked out We I took a picture with him and me by the fire truck talked for a few more minutes and then he disappeared back into the control room and Andy and I were standing outside looking at the plaque. A few minutes later, he walks back out and he says to me and Andy that he called the other firefighter to let him know, but the other firefighter, John was not home or something. He must've been doing something because there was, he left a message on the machine to call him. Mm-hmm. And he told us of a story how you know, every year people, the firefighters always have like a picnic after they do the reading of the names and everything at the plaza for the the survivors, you know, go there and talk about their families. They do the big picnic and his, his daughter saw one of the um, ghosts, an apparition of one of the past firemen trying to get into the closet where they had the beer. But she saw the ghost of one of their fire guys that had passed away on 9-11 in the closet Mm -hmm. so he he felt comfortable enough with me to share something that had happened that he probably couldn't really tell anybody else just like me i i was afraid to even talk about this stuff for the longest time because you know oh you're just a freaking nutcase oh no no i'm the biggest skeptic in the world but you know to see the look of relief on somebody's face knowing that someone that they care about didn't suffer the sense of relief that that person gets from knowing that we hold on to so much as human beings. We don't even realize we tuck it so far deep inside. And for me to be able to talk about this stuff, it's, it's a beautiful thing. It's a relief for me because my soul feels comfortable now to know that it's okay. And if someone says, Oh, you're just full of shit. I hate to tell you something, that trip to New York proved to me that I'm not full of shit. If anything, that one slammed me with a brick wall right in the face. Because how the hell would I know some of these things? I didn't know that guy's child had passed away. I didn't know anything. You didn't know about the kid? No. And I mean, that's the whole thing. These are things that I have no clue about. Right. And. You know, I I was only interested in in saying what was told. And for this guy to come to me before I, you know, left for New York and say, oh, by the way, you know, make sure you tell them this. Mm. I'm like, 
you know, what do you do with that? Well, I, I really like that, that your message was received as well as it was, because my first thing I think would be, even, even though I've seen so many things that make me not question that, I think there's so many charlatans and, and things that, I, that is such a dated word, but you know what I mean? Oh, it, it's like snake oil salesmen and that sort of thing that I think I would have been incredibly skeptical as good as the message seemed or might have seemed realistic. It's like, you know, especially with the Internet, it's easy to research things. I don't yeah. Unless I connected with your energy and felt that honesty, with which I think probably he did, and that's part of what helped your message come across. There's a reason that you're being contacted, and and that same reason is what makes you the right person to deliver the message. But I think for a lot of people, I don't know. I I think that it would be it would not have surprised me if you would have been rejected. I'm just glad that you weren't. Well, how I always preface that conversation, I'm a little more more cautious now. And I've always said, I don't know what your belief system is, Mm -hmm. but, but, (laughs) you know, because I've had my mind blown by this. I, I've been overly critical. You, in your seven pages of notes, you even jumped on me a couple of times. Why are you doubting yourself at this point when you already know this is what you, what you can do? It's like, you don't you don't get it until you walk in those shoes. I am going to continuously doubt that because I don't understand how this is happening. I don't I don't get it. You know, it's one thing it's one thing for my late husband to connect with me, but then to have strangers and then to have people from you know all walks of life who died in an, a major thing that took place for the whole universe to see. I still didn't understand why it was like, there's just no way in hell that this could be what it is. I still doubted it when I was doing my investigation work, Mm -hmm. but I had no choice. But when you're sitting in front of a human being and you, I mean, I couldn't help it. It took a while for me to get all of this out to him. It took a while. And I'm glad having Andy in that room with me, I constantly looked over at him and he was like, go ahead, tell him, you know, you have to. And that, and I even prefaced it to this guy. I said, look, I said, he lives here. He's a New Yorker. He was with me when this happened. Mm-hmm. He, he, you know, New Yorkers don't bullshit you. They, right. they tell you straight up. If they don't like you, they don't like you. Mm-hmm. And I was so grateful that he allowed me the opportunity to sit before him a true hero that goes out there and puts his life on the line for everyone else so that I could give him a sense of peace so that I could allow someone who he cared about to talk to him in a way that he could understand. And if it, if it involves a total stranger, who is the person that's for, I, I, for all intents and purposes, I call it like a claw machine. You know, this thing just gets in the top of my head, and then they can just speak right through me. And I'm, I'm like the pup. You know, I'm the puppet. They can use me to do whatever they need to. Mm-hmm. At that point, that's kind of what it feels like. It feels like you're just there, and it's not really you delivering the message. It is just them manipulating my vocal cords to tell that person something that they need to hear. And I thought about this. It was, it was upsetting to me that I still have yet to talk to the sister or the other fireman I initially wanted to talk to, but then it dawned on me. 
again, here we go. I'm a stranger from Arizona. I'm thousands of miles away. I don't know you. Are you really going to believe what I have to say? So if it goes through a friend of yours that you trust, then you can trust that what I'm telling you is true because you just heard it from someone that you trust. They're the go-between that can buffer it for you. And I have never heard from the rest of the people that I needed to talk to. And the funny thing is the very next day, and it, people are going to get a kick out of it because in the book, it talks about one of the spirits coming to me in the shower back in 2018. Mm -hmm. It happened again in 2019. The fireman showed up in the shower the next morning and gave me yet another message to deliver that I can't deliver because I haven't met his sister yet. Oh, yeah. So it's a, it's a very small message, but it's a very private thing for her. Mm -hmm. So if I ever get to speak to her, then she'll get to hear that little private piece that was meant for her, that he interrupted me in my morning shower and decided to pay me a visit. So that, well, it's, it's, it's a humorous thing, even though it's a tragic thing, you know? I certainly hope that you have the opportunity to deliver that message. And I, I have to say, it really takes a lot of... Um, I don't know what what the word is, but it takes a lot of something to to be able to walk into there uh, anywhere, let alone a place like New York, where you're right down the street from what happened and uh, and share that message with somebody because you don't know what it's going to do to them. All you know is from from your perspective of, hey, this person is telling me I need to do this and they're just going to bug the shit out of me more and more until I do. So I kind of don't have a choice here. But at the same point, I don't know what I'm getting myself into like that. That no. has to take a, a really intense strength. I just felt compelled that that's the only word I can come up with. I just mm -hmm. had this compelling thing that was pushing me to do it. And I paid for plane fare. I paid for everything in New York, except for a place to stay. Thank God. Andy let me stay at his house and sleep on his couch. But you know, the whole idea that I went there with this compelling mission, if you will, I, I don't know why, but I just did. Mm -hmm. I, I had to, and I didn't do it for any reason other than exactly what it was. I yeah. had planned the, I had planned the trip and said to him, let's just go to the fire station and meet them if we can. And then two days before day before when, he talked to me on my way to work. It was like, oh, no, no, you ain't going to go there just to go talk to them. You're going to go there and do this. There, there's a reason why you're going there. And I'm going to give you that reason why. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to let you alone until you do what you got to do. That's why he came into me in a taxi cab down the street when right. I'm trying to when I'm trying to tell Andy, no, I'm not going to do this. Mm -hmm. This, I, I told him, I said, look, dude, this is fucking crazy. Are you kidding me? I'm going to walk in there and talk to these people. What right. am I doing? Yeah, I did, I did that. I did that. I second guessed myself on the cab right over there. And, and I'm like, yeah, he's talking to me right now. Telling me I'm not backing out of this shit. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what he said. You're not backing out of this shit. You're here. You're going to do this. Right. And, and he gave uh, you that uh, choiceless pep talk. Yeah. Well, you know, I, it was one of the most beautiful experiences I've ever had in my entire life. And there's a part of the book I've changed. You haven't read this, but at the very end of that chapter, I put 
a sentence in there that says, a part of my heart and soul is in New York as a part of New York is in my heart and soul. Mm, that's beautiful. I like and that. It's very, it's very true. I When I came home, I actually have a photo frame. There's these big collage photo frames. And this one says, life is not measured by the number of breaths we take, but by the moments that take our breath away. And in this photo frame is pictures of me in New York and pictures of New York, me and Sal in front of the fire truck, the Brooklyn Bridge, the tower, this memorial that they have inside the firehouse that has the plaques of all the firefighters that perished from that firehouse that day. Mm -hmm. It has a picture of their fire truck because their firehouse was pretty much blown out being right next door. And they have the beautiful American flag painted on their, their bay doors. And I have this all in in this big massive photo frame hanging on my wall in my bedroom that I look at every day when I go to sleep and every day when I wake up, because that was a defining moment for me. Yeah. And I will never be able to think about that whole situation without feeling like my heart is with these people on a level that strangers like me would never really understand. We all witnessed what happened. We were all part of it in some sense of the way. And a lot of us have moved on from it because there weren't family that was involved, friends or family. But for someone like me, it profoundly affected me in every way possible. Mm -hmm. And, that is something that I will always live with and take with me that I will never, ever, ever take anything for granted. And for them to open up, you know, for him to open up his heart and for him to allow me to give him the message that was being given to me, I, there's no words to describe it other than just, to me, it, it's, it's an experience that will forever stay with me. Well, yeah, I mean, there's no way that you could uh, even even having half of that experience or a quarter of that experience, I think that would leave a mark on you that would not uh, ever, ever fade. You know, Uh, I think that that that's one of the beautiful things about what you experience is that you do get to make a difference in people's lives uh, when you're prompted to and, and given that ability and, you know, now he doesn't have to wonder. Now he uh, can can let that go as he physically as you physically saw him uh, let that weight carry uh, that he's been carrying on his shoulders, let it physically leave him. And that has now changed his life for sure in the same way that it's changed yours. And the fact that he can now tell the mother and the sister that where he what happened and that he's OK mm-hmm. Yeah. And that the other firefighter can know that his son is being watched over on the other side. That I would have given anything. I was so desperately wanting them to call me before I left New York, but it didn't happen. He asked for my business card, you know, for my phone number. So I gave him my business card. And, you know, I. It, it's just so funny when you think about it, because I coming from Arizona, being a total stranger, sitting in front of somebody who went through some pretty traumatic shit in their life and still has to live with the fallout of it because they're all reminded of it being, you could, you could spit, you could stand out on their corner and spit right across the street. And there's the the plaza where the towers are. That's how close they are. They, they were the first ones to go there. Mm -hmm. Someone was standing outside when it happened. 
The guy jumped in the truck. They ran over bodies getting there because they were that close. Wow. And it's so profound that, you know, to be able to stand in front, and I love our first responders, but to be able to stand in front of one of them who survived something so horrific, not to mention the shit they go through every single day that's horrific that most of us will never see in our lifetimes, mm -hmm. but to face something that horrific that's on your home, home, home turf, right in your backyard of where you go to work every day, right. that that is something that there's no words that can express what it meant to me to be there. And, you know, I thank all six of the spirits that came to me that day because without them, I wouldn't truly understand the gravity, even though I understand death and tragic stuff that happens from a different level. I would never have seen the gravity of what this has done to people through the years by not seeing the sense of relief that someone was able to let go of 18 years later. It's really amazing the uh, the things that we carry around with ourselves, and and you know that person. When you work with somebody on a, a level of dealing with emergencies, dealing with tragedies, there's a different bond that I yeah. think you can only understand if you've been through those kind of things with someone. And you, there, there's a brotherhood to I think the policemen, I think to firefighters, to paramedics to people that share those experiences that no one will ever understand the depth of that camaraderie. And in a way I'm grateful that, uh, that people can't. And in a way I wish they would, because that is, it, it can be a really beautiful thing. I'm grateful that you were able to deliver that message. And I, I have the utmost respect for you for walking in there and actually doing it because yeah, you really didn't have a choice, but at the same point you did. Yeah, and, what the hell was yeah. I thinking was what kept running through my mind. It's like, are you nuts? Are you crazy? These people are going to think you're, you know, lock me up, throw me in the padded cell for a while, meditate me. There's something wrong with me. Well, it's not like you walked in there and said, look, I have a message from this person. If you want to know what it is, it's going to be forty nine ninety five. I mean, you didn't walk in there trying to get something out of him. And no, I think and that's that, a, that's that makes a big difference. And you didn't try to get something out of him afterwards. Well, now that I've done this for you, here's what I need you to do. I need money to get back to Phoenix or, you know, whatever the story is. There was no. nothing about you that asked anything of him except to listen. Uh, no, I all I could do. I mean, in the back of my mind, there's no way that I could ever sit down and charge anybody for this. I would never feel comfortable for that at all. Yeah. The, the biggest thing that I wanted, I wanted that. And I'm, I'm going to be kind of a, a, a pain in the butt here when I say this, but I wanted that asshole to stop fucking talking to me. He's driving me nuts. <laughs> well, that's what I mean. That's like when I said you, you did I'm have sorry. a choice, but you didn't because you know I'm that. I'm sorry, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> but if you if you didn't, it just would have it would have gotten louder and louder and louder until you, yes. you know, so, so you, know, you might as well yes. just do it. But at the same point, there's a difference between I need you to do this and expecting you to actually do it. You know, he, it, it's a it's a weird, weird thing to put somebody in that position to ask them to do that. I mean, from the spiritual side, of, I always try and think of through the, the other set of eyes and, and trying to think through their side. Yes, I need to get this message to him. Maybe he'd try to reach out and that person wouldn't listen like because you, they're not open to it like you were. And he found you and he's like, oh, 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 ooh, perfect. I've got somebody that, that can talk to him. 
And of course, yeah, then he's well, not going to let that go because who knows how long he's been trying to get this message out. And, you know, I I jokingly call him an a-hole. So I, I want to clarify that because I know he died in the line of duty and he was a good guy. But he knows that he drives me crazy sometimes because he has the funny thing about this book, working with the publisher on it. He actually came to her while her and I were having a conversation. Really? Oh, yeah. And she writes, this is the beautiful thing. She writes, she told me, she goes, um, I decided to put something in your book. Is that okay? She read me, she read a note from the publisher and she writes this page and a half note in there from the publisher about how never in her wildest dreams, because her and I never met face to face. We've only known each other for five years. We've only talked. We've never met. Okay. And, and she said for two people who have never met like Robin and me to connect with the same spirit is just, it blew her mind. Yeah. It blew her mind. It blew her mind that he would connect with her while we were talking on the phone. Well, if she had any questions about the book or its validity, certainly she's she's not questioning it now. No, but the whole purpose behind him doing that, and, and I get why he became a pain in my ass that day when I was there in the taxi cab. It's because you're here. You flew all this way to do this. Why are you doubting what your abilities are? Why are you doubting yourself? You've told me this, Scott. You told me this in those pages you sent me. Why do I continue to doubt this ability? But again, it's not that I doubt it. I feared being rejected by people. It's not that I feared what people thought of me because I've gotten to the point where I don't give a damn what people think of me. I am who I am and I'm comfortable in my own skin. But when you're talking about real life people who have passed away, who are reaching out, wanting to say something to somebody who's still in the living present, you're like, okay, I've been condemned. I've been called demonic. I've been called Weird stuff. Religious people put a crucifix in my face and said, no, no, that's the devil's work. No, that's not the devil's work. If it were the devil's work, I'd be like mixing up with serial killers and going out and killing people. That might be the devil's work. But these are people who honestly died who just need to let their loved ones know, hey, I'm here if you need to talk to me. I'm here. Don't worry about me. I'm all good. And it's tough because the people that are are making these accusations of you are there. Everything that that designs someone's perception is based on whatever their programming is. And most people, yeah. like myself, were programmed from the very beginning that that this is how it works. There's religion. There's God. There's Satan. And here's what you can do. And here's what you can't do. And if you do this, you're going to hell. Uh, what kind of father could do that to his children? You know, you go back and forth through all these things. But but because these things were instilled in us from such an early age, that's our go-to. And the people that have continued on with those beliefs and, and they get stronger and stronger as life goes on. And then 50 years they've been living as if this is the way that it is. Their persecution of you comes from those beliefs and what was put into them. And they sure. never, they never uh, varied from that. So, well, sure. but there's a difference between understanding that and having to put up with it. Right. And it's all about fear too, because we fear, the, we fear death more than anything. We fear the end. We think mm-hmm. that death is the end. And that's one thing I've learned through all of this. It's a huge wake up call. Yeah. It, you know, death is not the end. It's just the next transition to the next place you're going to. And think about it this way, you know. 
Seven billion people die every 100 years. Mm-hmm. Every 100 years, the cycle continues. So every year, more and more people die so that they can regenerate, go back home. Then they're reborn again in a different body. It's, it's that whole cycle of life and death. We're not really dying. We're yeah. just moving from one plane to the other. And the cool thing about it is that I've learned is you can do some pretty cool shit on the other side that, that you can't even do here in physical. Yeah, I could walk over and pick up something and move it. But to have the power where somebody is in a room with you and they can move something and you're not even seeing them move it, but you're seeing something move, that's pretty freaking cool to know that we can do that from a different plane that we can actually reach through the world and move something or touch somebody. And to me, you know, when my husband died, I talk about the one time in the book where I missed him so badly that I'm in a pitch black room and I could see this white light tracing my body, the reflection of this white light. And I could see it. And I'm like, holy shit, this is so cool. And I'm like, I know you're there with me. Mm-hmm. You know, I know you're touching me. And it stopped for a second. I said, it's okay. I'm all right with that. And yeah. I knew it was him because I felt such peace and love from that. And to see that and feel the, feel the pricky, you know, there's like prickles. Mm-hmm. And it was just really, really cool to know that there's more to what's in our lives than just our life here. Yeah, and I think I always think about what would be the point, you know, if if it's just us and then we die and then that's it. What's the point? Exactly. What you is know? the point? Um, so I, I knew we were going to get two episodes out of this, but uh, let me let me ask you one more thing. Uh, well, if so many people are so skeptical about this, and, and I get that a lot of it's fear based because not only are they afraid of the possibility, but it also shakes the reality of what they've spent their life believing that that we live and we die and that's it. When we die, we go to heaven and then we have peace for eternity or bad people go to hell and and that's it. Um, but if, if that's such a strong core belief for people and so many people are willing to uh, laugh at people or judge them if they say they believe in the paranormal and it's still it's acceptable, but it's also very taboo at the same point. Why are shows like Ghost Hunters and Ghost Adventures and and uh, documentaries on paranormal and, and all the ones that Dan Aykroyd did? Why are they so popular if people think that it's not real? Because it's a curiosity. It is, you know, just it's no different than the curiosity I had when I came home from New York and started doing research, trying to find who these people were. Mm-hmm. I didn't have their last names. I had three first names and then three other spirits. I had no idea who the hell they were, mm-hmm. you know. It's a curiosity. We don't understand things. And as human nature, we want to explore and we want to uh, feed ourselves and and figure out how to do things. I mean, nowadays we're in a YouTube culture. Mm -hmm. We don't want to go take if if we have something we need to do that we don't know how to do. We go on YouTube and we figure out we watch a 10 minute video to figure out how to do it. A lot of times we shouldn't do that because we make a lot of mistakes. But there's a lot. There's a lot of things that we're curious about. And I think that in the back of our minds, our conditioning doesn't hide back there. It hides in the forefront. But in the back of our minds, there's that curiosity. Well, what if, just like we go to watch the movie Independence Day when it's in the theaters for the first time years ago, 
I walked out of the theater going, holy shit. I just feel like there was a, a world invasion going on. That movie felt so real when I walked outside. I was like looking around for the spaceships and the aliens. Mm-hmm. And that's, it's that curiosity that drives us to that, even though the fear is instilled in us. We're not born with that fear. We're not born with it. We condi- get conditioned to it. Yeah. And I am going to. I am going to say one thing before we even finish this that's going to blow people's minds. Okay. Um, I, myself, not I, I grew up non-denominational, but my dad was Catholic, my mom was Baptist, and they went non-denominational when us kids were born. But I don't know where I heard this. I don't know why it was part of my conditioning, but I always believed people who commit suicide go to hell. Mm. I, isn't that well, that's a Christian belief or a Catholic belief, maybe? I, I've heard it was a Catholic belief, too. I don't know. But this is something that you hear growing up through the years. Mm-hmm. But my understanding is that's a way to control you by that fear. Yeah. Um, three years ago, I was proved wrong with that. Mm-hmm. When someone that was very close to me committed suicide. I've had a lot of suicide in my life. But this one really, really changed my belief system and freaked me out beyond anything. I never saw her in hell. She came to me in a beautiful white light. Mm-hmm. All I felt was peace and love. She told me she regretted what she did. And she felt bad for the things that she put me through and put everybody through because she knew what she left behind. But she felt she did what she needed to do for herself at that point of her life. Right. And it was it was her way of getting rid of all the garbage she had accumulated in her life. She couldn't take it. But for her to show me a beautiful, peaceful, loving version of herself in nothing but just this beautiful white light, she changed my view on things. And she, no, I no longer believe that people go to hell for committing suicide. I think that's just a belief that's put into us to keep us from doing it. I will. I was just going to say, I, I'm not really sure that I believe that hell exists. It does on Earth. On Earth, yes, but in, but yeah. in the astral, I'll I'll use the more generic term of the astral plane. I I can't fathom that that's a thing. I think that that's just something that we're told to keep us in check here on Earth. I would totally agree with you on that because I've had so much spirit contact through the years that have proven to me, even in the worst of situations, you don't carry that over there with you. The cancer is gone. Your body's over there. Mm-hmm. The hell is right here. Everything we go through right here on Earth is hell because you have to learn. And the only way to learn is to experience, to go through the motions, to live the emotion, to live the hurt, the pain, the the trauma, the tragedy. But But we have to remember, too, even though there's hell here that we go through, there's still a lot of amazing, beautiful, wonderful things about living life as a human being mm-hmm. that we forget because when we go over there, you don't get to smoke a cigarette or drink a glass of alcohol or have a steak dinner. We're just ectoplasm. We're a spirit. We're a soul over there. We don't have that ability to do what the kinds of things we can do here. So when we come here, as bad as our human life can be at times, it's a beautiful experience to go through as well, because to kiss somebody, to be intimate with someone, to have a baby, to have children's laughter, to going outside and putting your feet in the grass, to watching 
dolphins in the water when you're in Hawaii to those kinds of things. We don't get to take part in that when we're over in the afterlife. But being in the physical body, you get to do and experience things, good, bad, or indifferent. And that's what the human experience is. I would absolutely agree with that. And I think that that might be a clue to part of the difference between what we were talking about, about that connection between the the, uh, intellectual soul energy versus the brain and what the brain wants and and that. I think that the heart is really more a part of the soul, the heart yes. that we talk about, not the physical, you know, pumping blood from one place to another. Uh, but the the heart, the love side of things, I think is more part of the soul. I think the desires for like wine and things like that, the, the more tangible physical things, I think are more of a brain function, but also a little bit of our soul too, because there are things that make us happy and bring us peace. And if our brain is at peace, our soul is is happier. I don't know. I mean, I mean, it's speculation, but when I think about it, and again, just coming from that intellectual uh, angle, it just seems more reasonable to me that that's how things would work. And here's something that might kind of, you might understand a little better if I explain this. I was, after, you know, my friend committed suicide, mm-hmm. there was a point I was on the phone talking to one of our other friends. And I was eating a Reese's peanut butter cup and out of my mouth came the words, Ooh, I miss chocolate. I can it hear was, it in her voice. I can hear her was, saying that in her voice. It was not my voice. And the person I was talking to on the phone goes, that sounded just like her. Wow. And she had an affinity for chocolate and after, you know, when her relatives had to go clean up her apartment and remove everything, they found chocolate hidden everywhere throughout really? the apartment. <laughs> so the fact that this person, I mean, it takes me right back to the movie Ghost. Mm-hmm. When he, the guy wants to break the, he breaks the cigarette. And, oh, I would give anything to smoke a cigarette. Yeah. You know, it really makes you think about that. And when she came through me about the chocolate I had to laugh my ass off. I was in the middle of grieving, but I had to laugh my ass off because that came out of my mouth, mm-hmm. but I didn't say it. Well, and you know, uh, for, for those people that are listening, what's really particularly interesting about this is, Robin, you have a slightly deeper voice, and she had a very high-pitched, uh, yeah. almost Marilyn Monroe-ish voice. Yes. And uh, so so I, I would say if I were talking to you and all of a sudden you started speaking in her voice, that would be incredibly apparent immediately. Like there wouldn't be a wow, that sounded a little weird. Like I would just know. And I took a bite of the chocolate because I was trying to maintain my blood level, my blood sugar level with mm-hmm. not getting much sleep and helping everybody through this. And right. just taking that that taking that bite and just getting ready to chew on it. And it was like Oh, I miss chocolate. You know, the words just came right out. And I'm just like, what the, I'm like, what the hell is that? Yeah. You know, it just, it was so funny the way that it happened. So the fact that, you know, it's that whole thing with the brain, heart, soul connection, Mm -hmm. even though they're on the other side, they can still miss things because they can't have it in the physical. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think that there's there's if you're still attached to the things that made you happy on Earth, I would have to think that it's really more memory um, of, of what it felt like to be in the physical than the need to have it now because she hadn't really left yet. Right. And yeah. And sometimes they have a lot of things that they do over there. And that's that's one thing that I really want to make sure I drive this point home with everyone, because there's a lot of people that go, well, I wish I wish I wish they would talk to me. 
look for the signs, first of all, be receptive to it. Don't get angry. You can't always expect it the way it's going to come. Yeah. It's not the Hollywood version of things, you know, it's, it's, no. they might need to figure out how to contact you because they probably have to learn how to do that. So there is that. Uh, But also I think just, you're right. I mean, just be open to signs because it might not be what you're expecting or what you're hoping for. But at the same point, be careful not to think that every little sound is them. Right. And also I, I tell everyone, if you feel that it's them, acknowledge it. You mm. don't have to go tell everybody in the world. And even if you got to think about it this way, if you think you see something and it makes you feel that it's that person, then just adore that moment for what it is. Don't make a big deal out of it. And don't exactly wish it away like, oh, I'm, I'm just thinking stupid. If you feel it, embellish the moment within yourself. Love it. Feel it. Understand that that might be them. And if it's not them, it doesn't matter anyways, because that moment makes you feel good thinking about them. And I've had this question posed to me many times. Am I sure it's not just a memory Mm -hmm. that I'm thinking of them? And then all of a sudden I smell their perfume. How can you smell someone's perfume if it's a memory? Yeah, I've smelled my grandfather's cigars and he quit smoking it had to be a good 15 years before he passed, but I still, I can, every once in a while, I can still smell his cigars or my other grandfather, I can smell his cigarettes. Yeah. And it's a familiar thing because mm-hmm. it reminds you right away. But that's, that to me is not a memory. That to me is someone saying, ah, I'm going to do this to get your attention. And you're going to know it's me because of this memory you have of me. So it's my way of telling you hello. You don't have to go tell the whole world about it. I know I just wrote a book and I'm telling the whole freaking world. (laughs) This is crazy enough. But, you know, you just think to yourself that this is a message for my loved one. It makes me feel good. And I don't have to share this with everybody because some, the non-believers and the naysayers are going to try to discount it. And then it's going to be like, I was a fool for saying that. Yeah. It's not what it is, whether it is or not, it makes you feel good. And that's all the loved ones want you to do is just feel good because love is really the only thing that transcends the world's. I honestly believe that. I honestly believe love is the one thing you take with you. Yes, you take the lessons, but we don't take our possessions. The only possession is the love in your heart, baby. That's the only possession you have when you cross over is that love. I would think memories, too. I I would think the love and memories. Yeah. You know. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, tangible. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Tangible. Love is tangible. It's it's the one human emotion that's very tangible when you cross when you cross over. Well, I think that is an absolute perfect note to end on. And and I have to say, uh, I said earlier that when you read this book, that you should have a box of tissues with you. I would also suggest a glass of wine. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I think that that would that would pair well. It's it's not an easy book to read, but it's not a hard book to read. It just depends on where you're at, what you believe, what resonates with you and what doesn't. Um, I know you well enough and and uh, I, I don't question the things that you have experienced at all. I also look at my own experiences and, and uh, the things that I just seem right to me as well. Uh, but it's a fantastic read. It's very emotional. I'm so glad that you put that book out. And again, it, it just shows more of that strength that you have, Robin, to be willing to put that out there for people to 
put crosses in your face. And uh, I think that you should deliver a copy to the Westboro Baptist Church. <laughs> yeah, I don't know about that one. I'd rather go back to the firehouse than go there. <laughs> that well, would be easier compared to that. Now, uh, I'll have the links in the show notes. Will the, the, the paperback is on its way out as we're recording yes. on uh, the week before, the, really a week before the podcast comes out. When will the book, uh, the physical book be available? Um, the physical book, the paperback itself should be available within about a week or so. Okay. My publisher is working on getting all the kinks out of it. I actually have the first proof copy from my local printer. So I will have books on hand for my local printer within a matter of a week. And then all of the books will be available online. It's available on every ebook platform already. It's been out for about two weeks. I think I put it up on the ebook platform. So it's available in every version out there, your Nook, your um, Amazon Kindles. I mean, it's available in every possible way to get it on ebook. But if you like a physical book in your hand, probably within another week or two. Excellent. Well, we'll have the links in the show notes. I would imagine the physical book will be available through Amazon. Yeah, it'll be available everywhere because we go through the main source that pumps it out across the world. So Amazon oh. will have it. But it'll also be available like at Barnes and Noble and any of your major book retailers online. So it'll be across the board. You can pretty much go anywhere like Apple Books or any places like that that have ebooks or paperbacks. It's pretty much going to be everywhere in your brick and mortar stores online. Very, very cool. Well, congratulations, Robin. Everybody grab a copy of this book. It is uh, it is a journey to read for sure. Thanks for coming on the show, for coming and hanging oh. out with me, for uh, for opening yourself up to, uh, you know, letting the emotion come through and just being the awesome person that you are. I love you to death. Oh, I love you too, Scott. And as always, I appreciate you having this platform to give all of us a voice to speak because that is important to be able to have that ability to get all of the creative types to get everybody that's making a difference in the world. I have a group called the collective and we're the movers, shakers and difference makers. And you're part of that because you bring people into this fold and allow them to have a place to comfortably use their voice and not feel any weirdness about it. And that's why I love doing this with you because these are hard subjects to talk about sometimes, but you make it very easy being one of my dearest friends. Well, that so means thanks. a lot. And uh, and I appreciate you having that group and making your difference in the world too, because we, we desperately need it. And when this paperback comes out, there's a copy coming your way because of your hard work helping me in this. So oh, I can never thank, thank you, you enough for that. Oh, it was it was an honor for me. And I'm I'm just glad that the things that I said were were helpful. It, I, I will, let me just add one more thing before we finish it, is that when I was talking to you, and I'm sure that the readers will will see where this kind of came about. But when I was talking to you about why aren't you getting it, it was it is frustrating as the reader. It's like being, you know, if you're into theater and you're watching a horror movie and you're like, he's right behind you with the knife. How do you not know he's there? It's you want to scream at the at the screen and and try and help that person and realizing, too, it was ridiculous for me because this is all in the past as I'm reading it. But it, it's like there's so much right in front of you. How are you not allowing yourself to accept it? That's a frustrating part of the journey. But that's got to be tenfold for what you were experiencing at the time, because the denial of it and having things continue to happen um, not really being able to open up to other people at first. I mean, there's, there's a whole nother journey just within that part of the process 
that it's kind of like watching a reality show. You can't really get the gist of what those people are feeling, why they're talking the way they are, why they're not doing things that you're screaming at them to do, because you can't really be in their shoes. No, and it's it's the conditioning. It's I'm a media personality. You know, I'm a person who's been on radio for 32 years. I've worked in television and film. I'm a person who is out there in the public eye in many ways. So I am extremely critical of anything that I do. I even warned my boss a couple of years ago, are you sure you want to hire me? Because you better look at my social media and the things I talk about, because I'm pretty blunt. Mm -hmm. And if you can't handle that, I'm not going to change who I am. So for me, as a recognizable personality here in Arizona, it was very difficult for me to understand what was happening to me, first of all. And then second of all, being able to communicate it effectively to other people without someone trying to say, oh, I, I can't explain all that away. Right. I'm, and, and I'm right there. I'm trying to explain it all the way, too. But you know what? When it's happening to you and you're trying to explain it all the way, what the hell is the balance? You're, you're going crazy. I literally thought I was going crazy having voices in my head. I thought I was going to have to check myself in mm -hmm. to a sanitarium. Right. But that's, that's where it all comes from. It's just, I, it's self-defeating behavior because that's what we're conditioned to believe that, oh, no, that can't be. Oh, there's no way that could be that. Uh-uh. No, you can explain that away. Oh, let's see. Is there water on the table? Is that why the glasses are moving? Is the table wobbly? Is that why things are moving? You're always looking for a way to explain it away. And of course, I blame myself a lot of that because that's my journalistic background, sure. the investigator side of me. I wanted to be a cop. So again, you know, I'm the guy that's going to tear everything apart to try to prove it wrong until I have no choice but to prove it right because it happened. And that's the way it is with a lot of non-believers. You are going to be a non-believer until it happens to you, and then you're going to question it. You're going to keep questioning it, and it's going to happen again. And then you're going to keep questioning it again, and it's going to happen again. And then you're going to be like, okay, holy shit, it's real. What choice do you have when it's just when it presents itself so many freaking times? Well, you have no choice. It's like they uh, they used to say on Ghost Hunters when you've removed when when you have some evidence and you remove everything that's normal all you're left with is the paranormal. Oh, I like that. Yeah. So I, I don't like think, that. I don't think they trademarked that, so I can say that without copyright issue. But uh, it is it is very true. Thank you so much, Robin. It's always a, a joy to have a, another lovely conversation with you. And uh, thanks for putting the book out. Everybody, grab it. Uh, there's an endless supply of digital copies and eventually a supply of physical copies that will be available very soon. Uh, keep at it, Robin, and come back and see us again. Oh, Scott, anytime, sweetheart. And I got to make my way to Vegas and uh, meet you in the physical. It's been way too long since we've seen each other. It really has. I would love to see you. So come back. Uh, come on up anytime. Well, when, when we it. turn the world back on again. <laughs> when we turn the world back exactly because i want to go down the strip with you and see what the crazy things you put in your book all about you oh. know i want to go live that life <laughs> there's no shortage of that either awesome <laughs> take... I, I love i love you so much honey thank you so much for letting me have this platform today. oh I, I love you too robin and uh, it's it's my pleasure and an honor to have been a uh, part of the book and uh and and help be a part of your journey so keep at it keep doing what you're doing and uh come see us you got it all right love you love you bye-bye
Well, there you have it, folks. What do you think? What are your thoughts and feelings on this subject? Give me a shout at the Haskincast podcast page on Facebook or uh, see the show's not coming up on YouTube right now, but uh, try um, my email, scott at scotthaskin.com. Facebook page is great because it opens discussions up with everybody. Kind of like that idea. And uh, yeah, so if you have any questions, anything at all, give me a shout out. Uh, please remember to share the podcast and uh, let other people know that it's out there. Even if there's just uh, one particular topic that you like, maybe somebody else that you know will enjoy that too. Thank you guys for uh, hanging out with me for another episode of the Haskin Cast podcast, and we will see you next week. Cheers.